Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there and welcome to another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh. Now, I'm no wine expert, although I have drunk a lot of wine in a lot of places over the years, and I reckon Australian wine is among the best in the world. My guest today, however, is actually qualified to give her opinion on that. Jane Lopez is a highly respected American sommelier, importer of Australian wines into the US, and she's a wine writer. She's just published her second book on wine, this time with her husband, Jonathan, who's also a master sommelier and partner in the Australian wine import business. The incredibly comprehensive How to Drink Australian features 600 wine producers from all wine regions of Australia. And today I'm going to chat everything Australian wine with Jane, including trying to figure out how an American develops such a passion for wine from down under going as far as calling it the most exciting wine in the world. Welcome, Jane. Thanks for joining me on Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Jane, you kind of fell into the world of wine, right? You actually studied, I believe it was Renaissance literature. What were your original career plans and how did that deviate and take you into the the world of wine? Yeah, I, I went to University of Chicago and I studied yeah, Renaissance literature. And I thought that I was going to go into academia, you know, get my PhD, be an English professor. And uh, I just needed a job in the year I was going to take off to write my grad school application. So I, I, I applied to work at the admissions department at, at University of Chicago. And I, I really thought I was going to get that job. <laughs> I really thought I nailed the interview and I didn't and I just needed a job. And so I went on Craigslist, which is just like a yeah on- online U.S. marketplace. And I saw a listing to work in a wine shop and I thought, that'll be fun. I like wine. Yeah. <laughs> I was 21 years old. Um, didn't really know much about wine, but but they hired me and, you know, pretty quickly I felt like I want to wanted to continue that path. And it was interesting, probably three months after I started that job, the admissions department came back to me and offered me, said the person they had hired didn't work out and they offered me that position. And even then I kind of knew I wanted, there was something there, there was something in wine that I wanted to follow. So Pretty quickly, I kind of had an idea that that wine could be a career path for me. Mm. So you you started off working in restaurants to uh, increase your knowledge about wine? Well, yeah, I, I, I started, I was at that retail shop for four years, ended up being the manager there. And I was also bartending in Chicago at the time at kind of a, a, a craft cocktail bar. And then... Yeah, restaurants sort of seemed like the next the next step. And so I got offered kind of through the owners of the bar in Chicago. They connected me with 
this restaurant group in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I, they offered me a job as a beverage director of a restaurant they were opening. And so I, I started there. Jane, so one of your achievements was working at 11 Madison Park when it was named number one in the world 50 best restaurants in 2017. What's it like working in a restaurant of that calibre? I mean, working at 11 Madison Park was an incredible experience. I really, I, I really loved it. I don't, I don't know if I would love working at every restaurant of that caliber, though. I feel like the 250 best caliber restaurants that I've worked at, EMP and Attica, are both, both unique mm. and culturally unique, I think, above anything else. And what I really loved about 11 Madison Park is, you know, there are obviously expectations of service excellence, but there's also a, a really strong encouragement that we were, we would be ourselves table side. There wasn't this kind of like, you have to be stiff and you have to not have fun and everything's serious. And there was very much a, we're here, we're going to do a great job. We're also going to have a lot of fun and we're going to be ourselves and we're going to connect with the guests. So I, I absolutely adored working there. It was really fun. It was fast paced. And I think, I think the best skill the, sk- the skill that anyone needs who wants to work in a restaurant like that is just sort of time management and keeping track of a, a million different things. You have however many tables in your section and they're all on a different course and they need a different thing. You know, if you're the kind of person who can just see a room, keep track of where everybody is, manage all the things you have to do, manage your time effectively. Those, that's probably the greatest, the greatest skill you need to, to work in a restaurant mm. like that can be quite intimidating, particularly if you don't know a lot about wine. How do you make people feel comfortable when they don't know a lot about wine in such a um, exalted restaurant? It was always my philosophy of as wine professionals, we're just kind of we're, we're just there to make sure the guests have a great time. And so it's just accessing that hospitality aspect through a different angle so it really isn't about you know of course it's about making sure they get the wines that they like and have the wine experience that they like but more than anything it's kind of how you can add to just a really exceptional experience for them and of course that involves making people feel feel really comfortable so it's it really is like we're just here to to serve you and there's no judgment had people order bottles of expensive champagne and add Splenda to them. Splenda is yeah. like oh, an artificial oh, yeah. sugar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <gasps> Why would you um, do that? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you like sweet champagne. <laughs> and we're not there to judge. We're not there to scold people. We're not there to tell them they're doing something wrong. We're just mm. there to make sure they have a good time. So if that's how they want to drink their Krug, then more power to them. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) You would have had quite a few high-profile people come through the restaurant in the time there. Can you tell us about any of them and the experiences that they had there? Definitely, yeah, took care of a few few high-profile people. People, when they came into Love Madison Park, were really chill, really nice. I will say the the person who was the most hounded by other diners when mm. they came in and ate was Gordon Ramsay. We had 
Robert De Niro and Paul McCartney and, you know, some some big name celebrities Mm. in that dining room. But Gordon Ramsay was the one that literally people were like swarming the table. It was like you expect people to act around the Beatles, but (laughs) it was Gordon Ramsay. And I think just because you get some people who to dining in that restaurant to to them, food celebrities are their celebrities and mm. that, that's what they're really interested in and he was really good natured about it he 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 was really delighted to have people kind of excited to see him and um he was he was actually he was he was really lovely hmm. interesting not not the persona yeah. you expect no it wasn't <laughs> Jane, you've hit some major milestones in your career, but one of the biggest has a bit of an unfortunate story attached to it. I remember when this happened and feeling so devastated for those people who were involved in it. Can you can you start by telling us what the Master Sommelier qualification is and what happened to you when you sat the exam? So the Master Sommelier qualification, this is through the Court of Master Sommeliers. It's an organisation started in the UK, but now is global. There's only, oh, I don't know the, the, the exact number these days, but mm. somewhere around 250 master sommeliers in the world who have passed since the 1960s. Mm. And so it's a very, it's a prestigious qualification. It's a hard exam. It's notoriously the... Uh, has the lowest passage rate of any exam (laughs) in the world. But a lot of wine professionals and specifically kind of restaurant wine professionals, sommeliers pursue it because, you know, because it, it, I think, provides some structure to our pursuit of knowledge and education in this industry, an industry that doesn't have a lot of structure around education. So something, there's four levels to it, introductory, certified, advanced, and masters that kind of get progressively harder uh, as you take them. So I took the introductory exam because other people at the wine shop in in Chicago were were taking it and it seemed like the thing to do. And and I passed that. and And then I started working in restaurants and I started going to tasting groups and Starting at the certified level, there's not only a, a theory portion where you're asked questions about anything in the world of wine. It can be something that's kind of relatively basic, like what's the what's the grape of Sancerre or something like that, all the way up to, you know, things that are pretty difficult questions like about soil types around the world, first vintages of famous wines, what cuvées producers make what vineyards producers make the prices of wines the history really can kind of be anything so there's that portion of the exam there's a service portion so you know this certification in contrast to something like wset and master of wine there is a, a, a service component where they kind of set up a mock service and you serve a table like you would in a restaurant and and those kind of get progressively kind of harder, more advanced as, as you progress in the in the levels of certification. And then there's a tasting portion. The so you're you're blind tasting, you're going through the wines and for advanced and masters at least, you're orally talking through the wines, 
we, we call it the grid. So going through the grid on each one, which means you're describing the site, the aromatics, the flavors, the structure, and then you're coming up with an initial conclusion of what you think the wine is and the final conclusion. So, so yeah, that's the exam. And I took certified exam in 2012. I took my advanced in 2013. I took master's for the first time in 2015. And with the master's exam, you have to take and pass the theory portion first. It's an oral theory exam. And so you have to take and pass that. And it's it's only given in person. So you have to be in the room with people. So some amount of travel is always involved. So I, I took master's theory in 2015. I didn't pass that. And then I took a couple years off and actually moved to Australia in, in, in those few years. And then I went back in 2018 to take the, the master's exam. And I, I passed all three portions that year. Then something unprecedented happened about five weeks after I passed. So you're given results immediately. So we were told the next day after the exam finished who passed. And, and so, you know, obviously very excited, very relieved. This was nine years in the making and went back to Australia, went back to work. And five weeks later, it was announced, I wasn't even notified personally, it was announced that the organization had discovered that one of the proctors had leaked a few of the wines on the tasting exam to to a few a few candidates. And for that reason, they were gonna they decided to invalidate the entire exam. And so that everyone who had passed was no longer a master sommelier and had to retake the tasting portion. Um, and there's no, there's no continuing certification for this exam. You don't have to ever take, take the sections again. So this was really unprecedented to have people who were considered master sommeliers at a time who then were not anymore. And really through no fault of our own, even the people who see it, saw the email didn't ask for it, but most of us never saw this email, didn't know a thing about it until, until that day. So <gasps> And why did they not sure. just discount the uh, results of the people who'd been involved? That's a great question. They kind of started off by saying, oh, there's no way for us to know. We can't access the email. And then the employer of the master sommelier who sent the email from his work email account said, oh, you can have access to the email. And then they kind of came up with another story and basically said, Oh, well, we don't, we don't know. Someone could have shared that email. Like there's just no way for us to know. And then we were all kind of like, well, you can look at digital forensics are pretty sophisticated. Like you can look at people's computers, you can see who had access. It just, I don't, I don't, I don't honestly know. Like it, the logical thing to me would have been to do an investigation and, and deal with the people separately whose exams were compromised. And, but for whatever reason, they, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of work to get to that point. It's terribly unfair that it happened like that. You must have felt a little bit disillusioned. There was definitely a little bit of a fall from grace for for the organization from me because I didn't think it was handled properly. And, and even more than that, Mm. I was really disappointed by, you know, a lot of people in, in that organization. And I mean, master sommeliers, People who I, you know, considered friends and colleagues and mentors really like 
turned their backs on me. Mm. They they really, you know, didn't didn't want to mm. support me in that time and that was probably the hardest part where it felt like this community that I'd really worked hard to be a part of and and wanted to be a part of and and mm. felt like it was a a supportive community kind of turned out mm. not to be as <laughs> as supportive as I had thought. So I think that was the hardest part, mm. but it also kind of made my decision to not go back and take the exam pretty easy. You know, I think I think that yeah. that exam is so difficult. It requires mm. so much focus and commitment. Especially the tasting exam requires a lot of mental fortitude and clarity. And I think once I'd lost sort of my real my real drive to kind of be a part of that organization, my belief in what it stood for, it was difficult to get back to a place where I felt like I could walk in that room again. So, so yeah, it was pretty, pretty easy to walk away. I can imagine. At that stage, you left the US. And as you said, you were in Australia, where you're working as wine director at Attica in Melbourne. What prompted that move? They offered me a job. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I so there's a guy named Kevin McSteen, who's a lovely Irish gentleman, and he had been a manager at Olive Madison Park. And so my husband and I met him there, and we we loved him. He was great. We became friends with him. And then he moved back to Australia. He'd actually been on the opening team at Butamont. So he moved back to Australia to be the venue manager for Attica. And so flash forward, maybe three or four months later, I decided to give my notice at 11 Madison Park. I was planning to take some time off to study for the master sommelier exam and, and also work on my first book. And so I was just chatting with him. I think it was like, oh, I I don't know, like Facebook messenger or something. And I told him I was, you know, I was leaving a love mess in park. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I kind of explained it. And he's like, well, I need a wine director. You should come to Australia. (laughs) What was your knowledge like on Australian wine at that stage? Had you had much contact with it in restaurants in the US? Some, you know, I think because, you know, I had been studying for these high level exams and consuming a lot of educational material on wine regions all over the world, I, I kind of felt like I had a good grasp on Australian wine. Mm. And that's why it was so like shocking when we landed in Australia and just really quickly realized we actually had no idea what was going on <laughs> in Australia wine. <laughs> and that there was just so much diversity and quality that we had not seen in the United States. So, you know, that was incredibly exciting as like wine lovers to just basically feel like you're discovering this like mecca of amazing wine that you just had no idea existed. That's because we keep all the good stuff here for ourselves. I know. (laughs) Very selfish. And you mentioned your your first book, Vignette Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles, which is now on my must read list after reading the reviews of it. It sounds like a fascinating read. Can Can you tell our listeners about... Just one of those hundred bottles that you wrote about and the story behind it. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of the premise of the book is that each chapter is, is has the title of a different style of wine. And then I list usually kind of one one to three bottles that 
you know, really exemplify that style. And sometimes there's specific bottles that like I relate to the story that's in that chapter. So, you know, the very first chapter is Krug. <laughs> the first chapter starts off kind my of favorite frames champagne. my, it is it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it frames my, my experience with the court of master sommeliers and so, you know, notoriously, and I'm not sure if it's true anymore, but Krug was always poured at the, like, at the festivities, at the ceremony, at the end, when they crowned the new Master Sommeliers. Mm. But, you know, 90% of people there just failed, <laughs> you know, just didn't, just didn't pass their exam. And so there sort of became this sort of idiom in the the wine industry in the U.S. that, like, Krug tastes like failure <laughs> because you're you're drinking it at this exam when you that you've just failed because almost everyone fails it and so that kind of was it's and they're really short you know I think that was like a page or two mm. that just set out to start frame like framing that so it you know and really so yeah my idea with the book is really just frame these like very personal relationships with wine where wine isn't just like a you know, it isn't just like a fun drink mm. <laughs> to have every now and then. For me, it was really like I had these bottles of wine that really punctuated my life. And yeah. really, I had these emotional relationships, too. And, and you know, and I, I think that that's a relationship that's available to everybody. And I think that makes wine more thoughtful and less of just like any alcoholic beverage. It makes it really something special that can bring you great memories can bring you together with loved ones to, you know, introduce you to new friends Mm -hmm. that, you know, wine can be a really powerful kind of tool in that respect. Absolutely. I don't think Kruger ever going to adopt that uh, slogan as part of their brand. They really shouldn't. They really shouldn't. (laughs) So we're going to talk about your second book, How to Drink Australian, which has just been released and is absolutely fabulous. But first, you and your husband started an Australian wine importing business, Legends. And I want to ask you, do you have to say it like we say it in Australia, legend? Or can you just <laughs> say it with an American accent? Um, we we try. Our Australian accents aren't honestly that great. So we... Uh, <laughs> We 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 tend to just just say it with our American accent. Yeah. Although there is there, I don't know if you've seen this video, but there's a YouTube video of this bird. <laughs> I think it's his name's like Kevin. It's like a very funny, like normal human name, and he's like a cockatoo or parakeet or mm. something. And he talks and he calls himself an effing legend, and. So whenever, and, and he's in Australia, he's, mm. in, you know, he kind of says it in an Australian accent. And so whenever, whenever, you know, we need to kind of express the real true attitude behind legend, that's what we send, send people to. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. Why did you decide to start a business importing Australian wine specifically? And what's been the reception from, I, I'm guessing that you uh, distribute to US restaurants. What's the reception been? Yeah, you know, I, I think when we moved to Australia, and we were just so blown away by the wine scene, we just felt like, our friends back home are going to get it, are going to be into this, you know, like people who've dedicated themselves to kind of 
to, to wine, to careers in wine, they want to know all that's out there, you know? And it just is such a shame that people were kind of missing out on so many of these amazing producers and regions. You know, we realized when we started importing that there wasn't a single producer of Beechworth wine in the U.S. Just for example, you know, and here's this region. It's not, it's a small region, but it's a very, you know, very high quality region, a lot of amazing producers. And, you know, living in the U.S., you couldn't, couldn't get a single Beechworth wine. And we just felt like, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, like people just have no, no idea and no ability to kind of access these wines. So like, let's do our part to kind of bring them over. And, you know, we really want to make Australian wine more commonplace. You know, people walk into restaurants in, in the U.S. and they, not that they say, I want French wine. They go beyond that. They say, I want Burgundy. I want Alsace. I want Bordeaux. Or maybe it's even more specific than that. They're saying, you know, I want a Von Romanet or I want a Saint-Joseph or whatever it is. And that's what we want for Australian wine. You know, we, in right now, no one even walks into a restaurant and asks for the Australian section. So that's the first step, right? But then eventually we want people walking into restaurants or retailers and saying, oh, you know, I really... I'd love a bottle of McLaren Vale Grenache, or I'm really interested in your selection of Adelaide Hill Chardonnay or, you know, whatever it is that these styles that we think are so iconic and represent so much quality and value. Like we really want people to kind of embrace these styles and learn about them. So, you know, overall the reception has been good, but it is still very much a, a little bit of a grind um, because there isn't, there isn't built in demand for these wines, you know, business, business school 101. The first thing they teach you is it's much easier to create a business that addresses existing demand rather than trying to create demand. And we're trying to create demand. And so, you know, we, we, and we have to sell the wines really three times. We have to sell them to, distributors in individual states and then we have to help them sell to restaurants and retailers and then we have to help them sell to their consumers because what we don't want is we don't want to find a distributor and have them buy some wine and then it to sit in their warehouse and they certainly don't want that either and we don't want them to sell it to restaurants and retailers and it to sit on the shelves or on their list like we want people drinking these wines so we do a lot of events, a lot of tastings, a lot of market work, a lot of trainings. We're constantly traveling around the country just getting these wines into people's glasses because mm. I think once they taste them and I, once, I think once they see our sort of passion and enthusiasm for these wines, people, you know, it's just been our experience that people really love them. Mm. If I'm going to a barbecue in America, for example, I'm just an ordinary American, What's what kind of bottle am I likely to take with me? What what would Americans reach for traditionally? Oh, I mean, your average American is reaching for a six pack of beer. Okay. <laughs> um, there isn't sort of as pervasive a wine culture in the United States as there is in Australia, we found that sort of the the, the, the beverage of the average person is is more beer and spirits than it mm -hmm. is wine. Mm -hmm. 
And I think there is sort of this intimidation factor around wine where there's so many different grapes and there's so many bottles and how do I choose and what do I, I don't know what I like. And, mm. and so I think it's sort of the, the first thing to state. But then beyond that, I think if someone does drink wine and they're just grabbing a bottle to go to the, a barbecue, like Cabernet Sauvignon is kind of our, our Shiraz, you know, that's sort of a, a more ubiquitous grape that's sort of everywhere. People drink a lot of Malbec here. They drink a lot of Pinot Noir. I would say. And they tend to choose American wines? Um, I don't think people always know or care. You know, it's funny when we tell people that 19 Crimes is largely Australian. Like there's some California bottlings from 19 Crimes, but, but for the most part, it's Australian. Mm. People don't know that. Mm. You know, it's kind of, I think, Yellowtail is famously Australian because mm-hmm. there's a, you know, there's a wallaby on the bottle, which most people think is a kangaroo. But for a lot of wine, people aren't focused on where it's from. You know, I think your average mm-hmm. consumer is picking by label, picking mm-hmm. by what's on special at their retailer. Mm-hmm. They're more concerned with grape than they are with place. Oh, interesting. So, so do American wine shops have sections are they divided by international sections or not everything's just in together under varietal perhaps it really depends a lot of places do have some regional sections right because you're not going to have like a a sangiovese section you're going to have an italian Mm -hmm. section so uh, and a lot of shops there is sort of they'll do it by grape and then also with mm-hmm. some regional breakouts. You know, we always say for Australian wine, it's best to do it by grape, right? Because for the most part, if people are walking into a shop there and they want Australian wine, they're probably looking for Shiraz. That's sort of the Australian uh-huh. dial that's known in the U S you know, mm-hmm. kind of big, bold Shiraz. Yeah. And so if we're, you know, if we sell a great bottle of, Gippsland Pinot Noir or Yarra Valley Syrah or Tasmanian Riesling or whatever it is, if those grapes go and sit next to Yellowtail on the shelves, they're not going to sell. So they're much better off sort of being grouped with with their grapes. Like we hope one day, again, we can sort of change perceptions on Australian wine so that eventually – People go to Australia section because they're like, oh, man, I've had a lot of great Australian wine. And I, you know, I'm from all number of grapes. And but I think until we get to that point, it is it is easier to kind of put these grapes alongside each other rather than all in Australia Mm. section. Sounds like you have a lot of work to do. So, Jane, then there was your second book, How to Drink Australian, which you co-wrote with your husband, John, who himself is not too shabby in the wine experience arena, I have to say. What prompted you to write it? (laughs) You know, when we started selling Australian wine over in the US, people were really surprised, really blown away by the wines like we were, and they were kind of like, Hey, how do we how do we learn more about Australian wine? And we just didn't really have a great a great resource to send them to. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think there is like a great modern all encompassing wine book for Australia. That you know, we really want wanted people. We wanted the stories mm-hmm. of Australian wine to really engage people the way they they did us. 
So, you know, somewhat naively, we were like, okay, well, we'll just have to write it. (laughs) And, you know, I think we underestimated a little bit just the sheer magnitude of, you know, really hard work (laughs) that, that went into creating this book and originally it was kind of like it was going to be 300 pages and then it sort of just ballooned from there but you know we're really really happy with it we worked with martin von weiss who's an amazing cartographer and we had a few great artists robin coucher and lily cummins working on the book the photography is beautiful it just it feels like a a a really great tribute to australian wine and australian wine deserves a great tribute mm. you know there's it deserves a beautiful wine book and it and it just didn't have that so we we decided you wrote the we book. would write it ourselves <laughs> yeah it must have been hard when it came to actually cutting things out it sounds like you had to do a lot of of research how did you pull the book together yeah you know i mean we're we're americans who lived in australia for 3 years we're definitely not trying to pretend that we are like the world's foremost experts on Australian wine. We were just willing to do the work and we really let the interviews that we had guide us as to sort of the narrative to create about each individual region. So, you know, we tapped our network of sommeliers and wine professionals that we knew to ask them if we weren't, you know, if it wasn't a region we were as familiar with, Mm -hmm to ask them like, who should we, who should we be talking to? Who Mm. should we be interviewing? Who should we be profiling? And then we really let those conversations sort of guide the direction of our research and of the chapters. We consulted a lot of existing scholarship on Australian wine. We're excited for Andrew Kayard's (laughs) on the history of Australian wine to come out because I think that will shed some light on perhaps some things that that we got wrong because it sounds like from what he says there there is a lot of misinformation in the Australian wine world so we may have Mm -hmm. to write a second edition after (laughs) after reading his book but in general we just tried to tap existing research as well as do our own original interviews to to guide the conversation and we didn't kind of really conduct any sort of novel research in the historical portion you know we tried to consult sort of contemporaneous articles and existing history books but I think where the book really has like novel scholarship is in the the current events and the current evolution of wine and you know, we didn't want this book to be like, here's the dry facts, right? Here's a, a history, here are the grapes planted, here's the soil type, here's the elevation. Like that doesn't give people a feel for what that region is all about. You know, we wanted, we wanted to ask the questions of, you know, what's, what are, what are producers excited about in this region? What are they nervous about? What are they worried about? What, issues are they dealing with how do they envision the future how do they look at the past and that's where i think we got like the juiciest most interesting stories Mm. i guess what you're creating is a snapshot of a point in australian wine history 
And without those, it makes it hard for wine scholarship in the future to see where we've come from and what was in fashion and what people were growing in, most importantly, why. Because there doesn't seem to be a lot of comprehensive record-keeping from the earliest days of the Australian wine industry. It's kind of hard to track down those, those earlier tomes. Yeah, no, it, it was. And I think some of it was also, some of it's also been sort of debunked. And I think that was some of what producers were able to give us insight on is like, you know, I think there's a lot of lore around like a James Busby type character. Yeah. And some of it's not correct. And <laughs> we certainly weren't taking on the task of let's sort of debunk and really interrogate all of this historical stuff. And again, I would probably point anyone to Andrew Kyer's new book for that. But we considered our job was like stringing together a narrative. You know, we, again, we don't want this to be just like first grapes planted here, you know, first time this grape was made, for, you know, first vintage for this producer. We really wanted to, to say, okay, well, what was going on? What was sort of the overarching development in this region in their early days, in their mid days, currently, like what's been going on, what's been motivating people throughout history. So, mm -hmm. so there definitely is some historical kind of context and information in there, but it's always with a framework of, of why, you know, why mm -hmm. this matters, why we should care, how it influenced the next generation, how it's paved the way for what we're, what we're looking at today. So, yeah, as much as we want it to be a resource that wine professionals can go to, to really dig into uh, these regions, we also wanted it to, to read in such a way that, you know, the wine novice could pick it up and really engage in, in wine regions, you know, without having... A, a, a huge base of knowledge mm. well that would be me so i will be taking it with me <laughs> on my next well, one let me know if we succeeded <laughs> jane you're obviously very au fait with australian wine but were there any surprises when you were researching the book yeah you know i think and this was one of my favorite parts about studying for the exams i took was doing a project like this really forces you to dig in to every region, you know, not just be like, well, I know I love this region and I'm going to just focus here. And so there were a few regions that I kind of, it just ha hadn't been the regions that had really captivated me when I had lived in Australia. And, and I, and I think that's, you know, for a variety of reasons and, and probably just my, my ignorance more than anything else. But like, I think Kunawara is a good example where I was kind of like, oh, it's all big red wine, and whatever. <laughs> um, and then as I really dug into the history, I found the history really compelling. I found the people there really, really forward thinking in a way that's not often given credit to that region for being. You know, and it wasn't forward thinking in the sense of like, let's plant all these new grapes and make all these weird styles of wine. It really is forward thinking in how are we approaching viticulture and technology and advancements in the most sophisticated way we can. And, you know, I just ha had a lot of respect for that. And, you know, when we went back to Australia in March, those were some of the wines I really wanted to seek out just because I thought I, I hadn't given them a fair shake 
when I had lived in Australia and that, you know, I was really impressed by, by the quality. So that's definitely one example, but I think, you know, Granite Belt is definitely one. We represent a a Granite Belt producer in the U S so we have a, a little bit of familiarity, but I think I was really blown away by all that's going on there and, you know, just how many compelling producers are really at work there today. I think the Australian wine industry is so rapidly changing that there's like, I think going to be new books to write in, in the years to come already, you know, not every single region got its own chapter just because, you know, that would be, a thousand page book like for example swan valley we kind of covered swan valley just outside perth in western australia and like the other western australian chapter so it didn't get its own chapter and you know sort of in the last six eight months since we finalized the manuscript i that's that's definitely one region that i'm like oh man they should have gotten their own chapter like it really (laughs) is just changing rapidly and a lot of kind of exciting developments and some some really amazing wines and so you know I mean all of that stuff is really exciting and it can be a little nerve-wracking as an author and creating Mm. this sort of um this product that's inevitably static you know it's like we can't it's not like an article online where we can go in and edit it but it also is is so exciting for the quality of the quality coming out of Australia and the constant sort of evolution and innovation. And it's just, it, it's, we say, you know, on, on the back of the book, I think it says there's never been a more exciting time to drink Australian wine. And we really truly believe that. And not only that, we believe that Australian wine is the most exciting wine in the world to drink wow, right now. That really okay. there just is, is no one else that's, that's, combining the level of knowledge and experience but also innovation and forward thinking that australia is wow that's fantastic to hear and that was going to be my next question is how australia differed from other wine producing countries i think we kind of felt like oh australia makes wines probably pretty comparable to any other non-european country maybe with a little bit more of a eucalyptus taste (laughs) which is so wrong And we, you know, I think a commonality, I think one of the things that really defines Australian wine is that it is in general a pretty high UV, high sunlight country. Mm. And when that aspect is really harnessed in a positive way, it creates really unique wine because to get technical for a second, that sunlight develops flavor, but without a corresponding heat and temperature increase that's developing sugar, which turns into alcohol. Like a good example is um, Tasmania is on the whole colder than Champagne, um, which is a very cold wine region, but it sees about a thousand more sunlight hours in a year. Um, So a huge amount more sunlight. And so you get the sunlight that's really helping flavors develop without corresponding heat and that's turning into alcohol so the wines are i think the best australian wines and one of our producers tenille chalmers she's the one who who Mm. kind of gave me this quote she said australian wine at its best is both both has an incredible depth of flavor and incredible freshness Mm. and 
I think that's to us what defines the best Australian wine. And I don't find that commonality really characteristic or typical of, of any other wines in the world. Oh, how interesting. I think we have this issue when it comes to our own food and it's only when you travel a lot and you try food from other countries that you realise actually Australian food is fantastic. Do you think we have the same problem with wine? You know, when you consider where our wine industry has come from, you know, European settlers, that we still value those above our own wines? 100%. You know, you all are very, like, humble to the point of sometimes being self-deprecating. And it's, you know, Rob Rob Mann, who's wine winemaker at Crimbia and a few other places, he, you know, he was telling us a story how when he was working in Napa, people would say, this is my new Napa cab and it's the best wine you're going to ever have and it's $300 a bottle and how many do you want? Mm. And that really worked. <laughs> and he said, you know, if you did that in Australia, you'd be laughed out of town. There's a currency of creating things that are of value mm. and not just puffing your chest up. And <laughs> and so I think that's obviously can be a very lovely, really good thing. But I think it also can be a detriment when you're trying to say, hey, our wines deserve the same attention, the same Mm. real estate, the same scholarship as the great wines of the world. You know, I think there is a concern that people are like, really, your wine's as good as champagne? And like, Mm. we're here to say like, hell yes, it is. Like Mm. these wines are are just as good as the, you know, the considered the sort of classic fine wine regions of the world. I guess Australian winemakers need to get better at their humble bragging by the sound of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but we're happy to do it for them. (laughs) Jane, you're currently on a bit of a rock and roll tour of Australia promoting the book. Tell us where you're going to be and when and what can people who uh, come along to one of the events expect? Yeah, we... We're doing a lot of fun stuff. So we're in Sydney, July 31st through August 4th. We fly to Canberra on August 4th. We're there just for one day. And then we're in Melbourne from August 5th to the 8th. (laughs) We fly to Brisbane on the 9th. And we do (laughs) events in Brisbane on the 9th and the 10th. We're doing dinners, we're doing tastings, we're doing pop-ups, we're doing happy hours, we're doing book signings, we're doing panels, we're doing discussions, we're doing Q&As, we're kind of doing it all. So there's, yeah, there's a great variety of events. Most of them involve some sort of wine, of course. So that's the fun part. And then, you know, you'll get to talk to John and I, either kind of in... Yeah, a formal or informal setting, and we're just there to have fun, show off some great Australian wine, and and show people what, what to expect in this book. Now, before I let you go, Jane, can I ask you a quick three-parter question? But what would be your death row Australian bottle? Oh, that's a good question. I think I'm not going to choose any of our producers because I love them all, <laughs> but... I am a huge, huge fan of Australian Grenache, and I adore the Alumba Tricentenary Grenache. So I will go with that, like a well-aged bottle of 
Yolamba Tricentenary. Okay. And can you think of a a great wine for somebody who's, you know, maybe starting out on their wine journey and doesn't have a lot of money to spend? Yeah. So the Chalmers family is, they just came out with a label called Mother Block, which is from their nursery block in Murray Darling. Chalmers, they have been since the 1990s importing mainly Italian grapes into Australia. And so this is a really personal project for them. It's also a really affordable project. And I think it's just really a testament to, you know, you can make great wine in a lot of places if you are really matching the right grape to the right place. So they're affordable bottlings of Italian blends. They do a rosé, a skin contact, a white and a red, all blends. And they're just, they're very affordable, very, very, very delicious. I do have some experience with Chalmers wines, I have to say. They are very great. (laughs) Now, I know that this question is a difficult one to answer, but uh, do you have a favourite Australian wine region? That is difficult. Mm. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm incredibly enchanted by Tasmania. I always talk about how that's where I'm going to retire to Mm -hmm. someday. I just think it's absolutely magical there. I think, you know, the produce is spectacular. Obviously, it's like astonishing natural beauty. There's great restaurants like Mona is one of my favorite museums mm. in the world. There's just great style. And and so, yeah, maybe I would say Tasmania, both for the wines and just for the vibes (laughs) the whole package well yeah thank you so much shane for being on extra virgin food and travel i know you're extremely busy so i appreciate you giving me the time and i hope the tour goes really well and the book sells like hotcakes well thank you very much we very much appreciate it appreciate it and just great to to be on and, and chat with you about it And listeners, I'll put a link to Jane's book on the extra virgin webpage www.extravirgin.com That's it for this episode and thank you as always for your company. And if you'd like to support me and Extra Virgin Podcast, you can go to the webpage and click on the buy me a coffee link. And literally for the price of a coffee, you can help keep Extra Virgin ad free. Until next time, bon voyage, bon appetit and chin chin. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. 